Chapter Seven of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven The Zealot. With a spirit of confidence inspired by her victory in New York State, Susan looked forward to the tenth National Women's Rights Convention in New York City in May, eighteen sixty. At this convention, she reported progress everywhere. $4,000 from the Jackson and Hovey funds had been spent in the successful New York campaign, and similar work was scheduled for Ohio. In Kansas, women had won from the Constitutional Convention equal rights and privileges in state-controlled schools and in the management of the public schools, including the right to vote for members of school boards, Mothers had been granted equal rights with fathers in the control and custody of their children, and married women had been given property rights. In Indiana, Maine, Missouri, and Ohio, married women could now control their own earnings. Each year we hail with pleasure, she continued, new accessions to our faith, brave men and true, from the higher walks of literature and art, from the bar, the bench, the pulpit, and legislative halls, are now ready to help woman wherever she claims to stand. She was thinking of the aid given her by Andrew J. Colvin and Anson Bigham of the New York Legislature, of the young journalist George William Curtis, just recently speaking for women of samuel longfellow at his first women's rights convention and of the popular henry ward beecher who just a few months before had delivered his great women's rights speech thereby identifying himself irrevocably with the cause she announced with great satisfaction the news which the papers had carried a few days before that matthew vassar of poughkeepsie had set aside four hundred thousand dollars to found a college for women equal in all respects to harvard and yale progress and good feeling were in the air and the speakers were not heckled as in past years by the rowdies who had made it a practice to follow abolitionists into women's rights meetings to bait them into this atmosphere of goodwill and rejoicing, Susan and Elizabeth Stanton now injected a more serious note, bringing before the convention the controversial question of marriage and divorce, which heretofore had been handled with kid gloves at all women's rights meetings, but which they sincerely believed demanded solution. Divorce had been much in the news because several leading families in America and in England were involved in lawsuits complicated by stringent divorce laws. Invariably, the wife bore the burden of censure and hardship, for no matter how unprincipled her husband might be, he was entitled to her children and her earnings under the property laws at most states. In New York, efforts were now being made to gain support for a liberal divorce bill, patterned after the Indiana law, and a variety of proposals were before the legislature, 
making drunkenness, insanity, desertion, and cruel and abusive treatment grounds for divorce. Horace Greeley and his tribune had been vigorously opposing a more liberal law for New York, while Robert Dale Owen of Indiana wrote in its defense. Everywhere people were reading the Greeley-Owen debates in the Tribune. Through his widely circulated paper, Horace Greeley had in a sense become an oracle for the people who felt he was safe and good, while Robert Dale Owen, because of his youthful association with the New Harmony community and Francis Wright, was branded with radicalism, which even his valuable service in the Indiana legislature and his two terms in Congress could not blot out. Susan and Mrs. Stanton had no patience with Horace Greeley's smug, old-fashioned opinions on marriage and divorce. In fact, these Greeley-Owen debates in the Tribune were the direct cause of their decision to bring this subject before the convention— where they hoped for support from their liberal friends. They counted especially on Lucy Stone, who seemed to give her approval when she wrote, I am glad you will speak on the divorce question, provided you yourself are clear on the subject. It is a great grave topic that one shudders to grapple, but its hour is coming. God touch your lips if you speak on it. Neither Susan nor Mrs. Stanton shuddered to grapple with any subject which they believed needed attention. In fact, the discussion of marriage and divorce in women's rights conventions had been on their minds for some time. Three years before, Susan had written Lucy, I have thought with you until of late that the social question must be kept separate from women's rights, but we have always claimed that our movement was human rights, not women's specially. It seems to me we have played on the surface of things quite long enough. Getting the right to hold property, to vote, to wear what dress we please, etc., are all to the good, but social freedom, after all, lies at the bottom of all. And unless woman gets that, she must continue the slave of man in all other things. Consternation spread through the genial ranks of the convention as Mrs. Stanton now offered resolutions calling for more liberal divorce laws. Quick to sense the temper of an audience, Susan felt its resistance to being jolted out of the pleasant contemplation of past successes to the unpleasant recognition that there were still difficult, ugly problems ahead. She was conscious at once of a stir of astonishment and disapproval when Mrs. Stanton, in her clear, compelling voice, read, Resolved, that an unfortunate or ill-assorted marriage is ever a calamity, but not ever, perhaps never a crime. And when society or government, by its laws or customs, compels its continuance always to the grief of one of the parties and the actual loss and damage of both it usurps an authority never delegated to man nor exercised by god himself 
listening to Mrs. Stanton's speech in defense of her ten bold resolutions on marriage and divorce. Susan felt that her brave colleague was speaking for women everywhere, for wives of the present and the future. As the hearty applause rang out, she concluded that even the disapproving admired her courage. But before the applause ceased, she saw Antoinette Blackwell on her feet, waiting to be heard. She knew that Antoinette, like Horace Greeley, preferred to think of all marriages as made in heaven, and true to form, Antoinette contended that the marriage relation must be lifelong, and as permanent and indissoluble as the relation of parent and child. At once, Ernestine Rose came to the rescue in support of Mrs. Stanton. Then Wendell Phillips showed his displeasure by moving that Mrs. Stanton's resolutions be laid on the table and expunged from the record, because they had no more to do with this convention than slavery in Kansas or temperance. This convention, he asserted, as I understand it, assembles to discuss the laws that rest unequally upon men and women, not those that rest equally on men and women. Aghast at this statement, Susan was totally unprepared to have his views supported by that other champion of liberty, William Lloyd Garrison, who, however, did not favor expunging the resolutions from the record. It was incomprehensible to Susan that neither Garrison nor Phillips recognized woman's subservient status in marriage under prevailing laws and traditions, and she now stated her own views with firmness. As to the point that this question does not belong to this platform, from that I totally dissent. Marriage has ever been a one-sided matter, resting most unequally upon the sexes. By it, man gains all, woman loses all. Tyrant law and lust reign supreme with him. Meek submission and ready obedience alone befit her. Warming to the subject, she continued, By law, public sentiment and religion from the time of Moses down to the present day. Woman has never been thought of other than as a piece of property, to be disposed of at the will and pleasure of man. And this very hour, by our statute books, by our so-called enlightened Christian civilization, she has no voice in saying what shall be the basis of the relation. She must accept marriage as man proffers it or not at all. When finally the vote was taken, Mrs. Stanton's resolutions were laid on the table, but not expunged from the record, and the convention adjourned with much to talk about and think about for some time to come. The newspapers, of course, could not overlook such a piece of news as this heated argument on divorce in a woman's rights convention and fanned the flames pro and con, most of them holding up Miss Anthony and Mrs. Stanton as dangerous examples of freedom for women. The Rev. A. D. Mayo, Unitarian clergyman of Albany, 
Heretofore, Susan's loyal champion now made a point of reproving her. "'You are not married,' he declared with withering scorn. "'You have no business to be discussing marriage.' "'To this,' she retorted. "'Well, Mr. Mayo, you are not a slave. "'Suppose you quit lecturing on slavery.' Both Susan and Mrs. Stanton, amazed at the opposition and the disapproval they had aroused, were grateful for Samuel Longfellow's comforting words of commendation and for the letters of approval which came from women from all parts of the state. Most satisfying of all was this reassurance from Lucretia Mott, whose judgment they had so highly valued. I was rejoiced to have such a defense of the resolutions as yours. I have the fullest confidence in the united judgment of Elizabeth Stanton and Susan Anthony, and I am glad they are so vigorous in the work. Hardest to bear was the disapproval of Wendell Phillips, whom they both admired so much. Difficult to understand and most disappointing was Lucy Stone's failure to attend the convention or come to their defense. Thinking over this first unfortunate difference of opinion among the faithful crusaders for freedom, to whom she had always felt so close in spirit, Susan was sadly disillusioned, but she had no regrets that the matter had been brought up and she defied her critics by speaking before a committee of the New York legislature in support of a liberal divorce bill. Nor was she surprised when a group of Boston women, headed by Caroline H. Dahl, called a convention which they hoped would counteract this radical outbreak in the women's rights movement by keeping to the safe subjects of education, vocation, and civil position. Having learned by this time, through the hard school of experience, that the bona fide reformer could not play safe and go forward, Susan thoughtfully commented, Cautious, careful people, always casting about to preserve their reputation and social standing, never can bring about a reform. Those who are really in earnest must be willing to be anything or nothing in the world's estimation and publicly and privately in season and out avow their sympathy with despised and persecuted ideas and their advocates and bear the consequences the repercussions of the divorce debates were soon drowned out by the noise and excitement of the presidential campaign of eighteen sixty with four candidates in the field breckinridge bell Douglas and Lincoln, each offering his party's solution for the nation's critical problems, there was much to think about and discuss, and Susan found women's rights pushed into the background. At the same time, antagonism toward abolitionists was steadily mounting, for they were being blamed for the tensions between the North and the South dedicated to the immediate and unconditional emancipation of slavery susan saw no hope in the promises of any political party even the republicans opposition to the extension of slavery in the territories which had won over many abolitionists 
including Henry and Elizabeth Stanton, seemed to her a mild and ineffectual answer to the burning questions of the hour. For her to further the election of Abraham Lincoln was unthinkable, since he favored the enforcement of the fugitive slave law and had stated he was not in favor of Negro citizenship. At heart, she was a non-voting Garrisonian abolitionist and would not support a political party which in any way sanctioned slavery. Had she been eligible as a voter, she undoubtedly would have refused to cast her ballot until a righteous anti-slavery government had been established. As she expressed it in a letter to Mrs. Stanton, she could not, if she were a man, vote for the least of two evils, one of which the nation must surely have in the presidential chair. She saw no possibility at this time of wiping out slavery by means of political abolition, because in spite of the fact that slavery had for years been one of the most pressing issues before the American people, no great political party had yet endorsed abolition, nor had a single prominent practical statesman advocated immediate unconditional emancipation. As the Liberty Party experiment had proved, an abolitionist running for office on an anti-slavery platform was doomed to defeat. Therefore, the gesture made in this critical campaign by a small group of abolitionists and nominating Garrett Smith for president appeared utterly futile to Susan. Abolitionists, she believed, follow the only course consistent with their principles when they eschewed politics, abstained from voting, and devoted their energies with the fervor of evangelists to a militant educational campaign. So, whenever she could, she continued to hold anti-slavery meetings. Crowded house at Port Byron, her diary records. I tried to say a few words at opening, but soon curled up like a sensitive plant. It is a terrible martyrdom for me to speak. Yet so great was the need to enlighten people on the evils of slavery that she endured this martyrdom, stepping into the breach when no other speaker was available. Taking as her subject, what is American slavery, she declared, it is the legalized, systematic robbery of the bodies and souls of nearly four millions of men, women, and children. It is the legalized traffic in God's image. She asked for personal liberty laws to protect the human rights of fugitive slaves, adding that the Dred Scott decision had been possible only because it reflected the spirit and purpose of the American people in the North as well as the South. She heaped blame on the North for restricting the Negro's educational and economic opportunities, for barring him from libraries, lectures, and theaters, and from hotels and seats on trains and buses. Let the North, she urged, prove to the South by her acts that she fully recognizes the humanity of the black man, that she respects his rights in all her educational, industrial, 
social, and political associations. This was asking far more than the North was ready to give. But to Susan it was justice which she must demand. No wonder free Negroes in the North honored and loved her and expressed their gratitude whenever they could. A fine-looking colored man on the train presented me with a bouquet, she wrote in her diary. Can't tell whether he knew me or only felt my sympathy. The threats of secession from the southern states, which followed Lincoln's election, brought little anxiety to Susan or her fellow abolitionists, for they had long preached no union with slaveholders, believing the dissolution of the union would prevent further expansion of slavery in the new western territories, and not only lessen the damaging influence of slavery on northern institutions, but relieve the north of complicity in maintaining slavery. Garrison, in his Liberator, had already asked, Will the South be so obliging as to secede from the Union? When, in December 1860, South Carolina seceded, Horace Greeley, who only a few months before had called the disunion abolitionists a little coterie of common scolds, now wrote in the Tribune, if the cotton states shall decide that they can do better out of the union than in it we insist in letting them go in peace the right to secede may be a revolutionary one but it exists nevertheless what abolitionists feared far more than secession was that to save the union some compromise would be made which would fasten slavery on the nation Susan agreed with Garrison when he declared in the Liberator, All union-saving efforts are simply idiotic. At last the covenant with death is annulled, the agreement with hell broken, at least by the action of South Carolina and ere long by all the slave-holding states, for their doom is won. Compromise, however, was in the air. The people were appalled and confused by the breaking up of the Union and the possibility of civil war, and the government fumbled. Powerful Republicans, among them Thurlow Weed, speaking for Eastern financial interests, favored the Crittenden Compromise, which would reestablish the Mason-Dixon line, protect slavery in the states where it was now legal, sanction the domestic slave trade, guarantee payment by the United States for escaped slaves, and forbid Congress to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia without the consent of Virginia and Maryland. Even Seward suggested a constitutional amendment guaranteeing non-interference with slavery in the slave states for all time. In such an atmosphere as this, Susan gloried in Wendell Phillips' impetuous declarations against compromise. While the whole country marked time, waiting for the inauguration of President Lincoln, abolitionists sent out their speakers, Susan heading a group in western New York which included Samuel J. May, Stephen S. Foster, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. All are united 
she wrote William Lloyd Garrison, that good faith and honor demand us to go forward and leave the responsibility of free speech or its suppression with the people of the places we visit. Then, showing that she well understood the temper of the times, she added, I trust no personal harm may come to you or Phillips or any of the little band of the true and faithful who shall defend the right. Feeling was running high in Buffalo when Susan arrived with her anti-slavery contingent in January 1861, expecting disturbances, but unprepared for the animosity of audiences which hissed, yelled, and stamped, so that not a speaker could be heard. The police made no effort to keep order, and finally the mob surged over the platform and the lights went out. Nevertheless, Susan, who was presiding, held her ground until lights were brought in and she could dimly see the milling crowd. In small towns, they were listened to with only occasional catcalls and boos of disapproval. But in every city, from Buffalo to Albany, the mobs broke up their meetings. Even in Rochester, which had never before shown open hostility to abolitionists, Susan's banner, no union with slaveholders, was torn down, and a restless audience hissed her as she opened her meeting and drowned out the speakers with their shouting and stamping, until at last the police took over and escorted the speakers home, through the jeering crowds. All but Susan now began to question the wisdom of holding more meetings, but her determination to continue and to assert the right of free speech shamed her colleagues into acquiescence. Cayenne pepper, thrown on the stove, broke up their meetings at Port Byron. In Rome, rowdies bore down upon Susan, who was taking the admission fee of ten cents, brushed her aside, big cloak, furs, and all, and rushed to the platform where they sang, hooted, and played cards until the speakers gave up in despair. Syracuse, well known for its tolerance and pride in free speech, now greeted them with a howling drunken mob armed with knives and pistols and rotten eggs. Susan on the platform courageously faced their jibes until she and her companions were forced out into the street. They then took refuge in the home of fellow abolitionists while the mob dragged effigies of Susan and Samuel J. May through the streets and burned them in the square. Not even this kept Susan from her last advertised meeting in Albany, where Lucretia Mott, Martha C. Wright, Garrett Smith and Frederick Douglass joined her. Here the Democratic mayor, George H. Thatcher, was determined to uphold free speech in spite of almost overwhelming opposition, and calling at the Delavan House for the abolitionists, safely escorted them to their hall. Then, with a revolver across his knees, he sat on the platform with them while his policemen, scattered through the hall, put down every disturbance. But at the end of the day, he warned Susan that he could no longer hold the mob in check and begged her as a personal favor to him to call off the rest of the meetings. She consented, 
and under his protection the intrepid little group of abolitionists walked back to their hotel with the mob trailing behind them. Looking back upon the tense days and nights of this winter of mobs, Susan was proud of her group of abolitionists who so bravely had carried out their mission. In comparison, the Republicans had shown up badly, not a Republican mayor having the courage or interest to give them protection. In fact, she found little in the attitude of the Republicans to offer even a glimmer of hope that they were capable of governing in this crisis. Lincoln's inaugural address prejudiced her at once, for he said, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. To her, the future looked dark when statesmen would save the Union at such a price. No compromise was Susan's watchword these days, as a feminist as well as an abolitionist, even though this again set her at odds with Garrison and Phillips, the two men she respected above all others. They were now writing her stern letters, urging her to reveal the hiding place of a fugitive wife and her daughter. Just before she had started on her anti-slavery crusade, and while she was in Albany with Lydia Mott, a heavily veiled woman with a tragic story had come to them for help. She was the wife of Dr. Charles Abner Phelps, a highly respected member of the Massachusetts Senate, and the mother of three children. She had discovered, she told them, that her husband was unfaithful to her, and when she confronted him with the proof, he had insisted that she suffered from delusions and had her committed to an insane asylum. For a year and a half, she had not been allowed to communicate with her children, but finally her brother, a prominent Albany attorney, obtained her release through a writ of habeas corpus, took her to his home, and persuaded Dr. Phelps to allow the children to visit her for a few weeks. Now she was desperate, as she again faced the prospect of being separated from her children by Massachusetts law, which gave even an unfaithful husband control of his wife's person and their children. Well aware of how often her friends of the Underground Railroad had defied the fugitive slave law and hidden and transported fugitive slaves, Susan decided she would do the same for this cultured, intelligent woman, a slave to her husband under the law. Without a thought of the consequences, she took the train on Christmas Day for New York with Mrs. Phelps and her 13-year-old daughter, both in disguise, hoping that in the crowded city they could hide from Dr. Phelps and the law. Arriving late at night, they walked through the snow and slush to a hotel, only to be refused a room because they were not accompanied by a gentleman. They tried another hotel, with the same result. And then Susan, remembering a boarding house run by a divorced woman she knew, hopefully rang her doorbell. She, too, refused them, 
claiming all her boarders would leave if she harbored a runaway wife. By this time, it was midnight. Cold and exhausted, they braved a Broadway hotel, where they were told there was no vacant room. But Susan, convinced this was only an excuse, said as much to the clerk, adding, You can give us a place to sleep, or we will sit in this office all night. When he threatened to call the police, she retorted, Very well. We will sit here till they come to take us to the station. Finally, he relented and gave them a room without heat. Early the next morning, Susan began making the rounds of her friends in search of shelter for Mrs. Phelps and her daughter, and finally, at the end of a discouraging day, Abby Hopper Gibbons, the Quaker who had so often hidden fugitive slaves, took this fugitive wife into her home. Returning to Albany, Susan found herself under suspicion and threatened with arrest by Dr. Phelps and Mrs. Phelps' brothers, because she had broken the law by depriving a father of his child. Letters and telegrams demanding that she reveal Mrs. Phelps' hiding place followed her to Rochester, and on her anti-slavery tour through western New York. Refusing to be intimidated, she ignored them all. When Garrison wrote her long letters in his small, neat hand, begging her not to involve the women's rights and anti-slavery movements in any hasty and ill-judged, no matter how well-meant, action, it was hard for her to reconcile this advice with his impetuous, undiplomatic, and dangerous actions on behalf of Negro slaves. I feel the strongest assurance, she told him, that what I have done is wholly right. Had I turned my back upon her, I should have scorned myself. That I should stop to ask if my act would injure the reputation of any movement never crossed my mind, nor will I allow such a fear to stifle my sympathies or tempt me to expose her to the cruel, inhuman treatment of her own household. Trust me, that as I ignore all law to help the slave, so will I ignore it all to protect an enslaved woman. When later they met at an anti-slavery convention, Garrison, renewing his efforts on behalf of Dr. Phelps, put this question to Susan. Don't you know that the law of Massachusetts gives the father the entire guardianship and control of the children? Yes, I know it, she answered. Does not the law of the United States give the slaveholder the ownership of the slave? And don't you break it every time you help a slave to Canada? Well, the law which gives the father the sole ownership of the children is just as wicked, and I'll break it just as quickly. You would die before you would deliver a slave to his master, and I will die before I will give up that child to its father. Susan escaped arrest, as she thought she would, for Dr. Phelps could not afford the unfavorable publicity involved. He managed to kidnap his child on her way to Sunday school, but his wife eventually won a divorce through the help of her friends. The most trying part of this experience for Susan was the attitude of Garrison and Phillips, who, 
had now for the second time failed to recognize that the freedom they claimed for the negro was also essential for women they believed in women's rights to be sure but when these rights touched the institution of marriage their vision was clouded just a year before they had fought mrs stanton's divorce resolutions because they were unable to see that the existing laws of marriage did not apply equally to men and women now they sustained the father's absolute right over his child what was it susan wondered that kept them from understanding was it loyalty to sex was it an unconscious clinging to dominance and superiority? Or was it sheer inability to recognize women as human beings like themselves? Very many abolitionists, she wrote in her diary, have yet to learn the ABC of women's rights. End of chapter 7